Well, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Genesis chapter 24. We've been walking through the book of Genesis, and this morning we're in Genesis 24. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some for you. On that table over there, you can raise your hand and flag down one of our ushers. They'll bring it to you, or you can go grab one uh, and keep it. Take it home, keep it with you. Uh, that's our gift to you as a church. But Genesis 24, uh, with where we're at in Genesis, we're kind of coming to a transition point. The, the baton is being passed from Abraham and Sarah to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. It's moving on to the next generation. And so we're going to get a few chapters here focused on Isaac and Rebekah uh, before Genesis transitions again and focuses in on the life of Isaac's son, Jacob. Uh, and in this chapter, Genesis 24, uh, is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. It's 67 verses. Uh, we're we're going to read most of them. We're not going to read all of them, but it's 67 verses long, and it's incredibly well told. Uh, and so clearly Moses, the author of Genesis, uh, wants to highlight how important this story is and wants us to focus in our attention on it. And so we're going to do that together uh, this morning. And so what we're going to do uh, I'll read a little bit of it at a time. We'll kind of talk through it, walk through the story together like that. Uh, and then when we get through it, we'll kind of sum it all up and, and draw some things out from it. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. All right. Genesis chapter 24, starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today. It speaks to us like this. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Um, I am eternally grateful that we live in a culture that uses handshakes and sign contracts to make agreements instead of grabbing under each other's thighs. Amen? Amen. If there's a reason to amen, that's something to amen about. That's a gift from God that we, we do not uh, make our agreements like this today. Uh, but if you think about where we're at in Genesis, really beginning in Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham and then all throughout Abraham's life, God has continued to make all these great promises to Abraham about how he was going to give him offspring. And he was going to give him offspring that was more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand by the sea, that he was going to give him and his offspring the promised land. And that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would find blessing and find salvation, that the Savior and salvation for the world was going to come through Abraham's line. Uh, and we've seen uh, some initial fulfillments of these promises 
uh, but we haven't seen the fullness of what God has promised. And we're really coming to the end of an era. Sarah has died, Abraham's wife, in the last chapter. Abraham is going to die in the next chapter. And so the, the text of Genesis really causes us to ask the question here, uh, now that Sarah has died, Abraham's about to die without seeing the full fulfillment of these promises, uh, what's God going to do? How are the promises going to continue? Uh, and if the promises are going to continue, then, then Isaac needs to have a wife. This promised son given to Abraham needs to have a wife so that this uh, line of promise can continue. And so this is what God is going to do for Isaac here in chapter 24. And uh, even before that, what we can see from these first few verses uh, is just the way that God has grown such a deep faithfulness in Abraham's life. I mean, notice a few of the things from these first few verses that we see. The first thing, uh, Abraham tells his servant that he needs to go back to the land that he's from and take a wife for Isaac from there so that Isaac would not marry one of the Canaanites. Now, hear me say, uh, he is telling him this for religious reasons. This is not for racial or for ethnic reasons. Uh, Moses, later on in the book of Exodus, will have what we would refer to today as an interracial marriage. And so that's not what the issue is here. The issue is, if Isaac were to marry one of these Canaanite women who don't know the Lord and don't follow God, they would turn away his heart from God. And this is what God continually tells his people. Uh, hundreds of years after this scene, when the Israelites are back on the cusp of the promised land, about to go in and inherit this land uh, that God promised to Abraham, God tells them this in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And, and we just see this play out time and time again in the Old Testament, especially in the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, Solomon, we see, he marries a bunch of foreign women who don't follow the Lord, and the Bible tells us that they turn his heart away from God, that they lead him into apostasy and into idolatry. Uh, this is just the consistent picture that God gives us. And so Abraham says, uh, go back and get a wife from my home, homeland that follows the Lord, that knows the Lord. And that's not all we see. The servant then asks Abraham, okay, well, what if she doesn't want to come back with me? What if she doesn't want to come back to this land? And Abraham tells him, okay, that's okay if she doesn't want to come back with you, but whatever you do, don't take Isaac back to that land. And look, this is deep faith on the part of Abraham. He, he believes God's promise. He, he says, don't take Isaac back there because this is the land that God has promised to him. This is where their future is. This is where everything uh, that matters, what God has promised to them, this is where it is. And so Abraham is trusting God here. He's expressing faith in God. I mean, he trusts God that, that God's going to do this. He even says so in verse 7. He thinks this is going to be a success, but he says, hey, if she won't come back, she won't come back, and you're free from my oath. Just don't take Isaac back there. And so he trusts God in all of this. And so we see Abraham's faithfulness, but even more than we see Abraham's faithfulness in this chapter, the big thing this chapter wants to show us is the providence and the faithfulness of God to guide the servant's journey and give him success. Abraham tells his servant, the angel of the Lord is going to go before you and prosper your way and make this journey successful. And that's exactly what we see him beginning to do next uh, as the text moves on. Look at verse 10 with me. 
It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And so the servant, he goes and he kind of proposes a test to God that will let him know when he's found the woman that he's supposed to be looking for. And, and I think it's important for us to notice here, this isn't some sort of arbitrary test, like if she can stand on one leg and get the water up out of the well without spilling any, then let her be the one that you've chosen for Isaac. No, this is a test of her character. Because for her to draw water for him to drink and then volunteer to water all of his camels would have been like an hour or two of incredibly hard work. Uh, for her to do this and to volunteer to serve him and to serve his camels in this way, when he didn't ask her to do that, uh, would reveal a deep amount of character and hospitality and welcome on her part. And, and so listen, uh, before we go here, this text is not at all about principles for how you find a spouse. Like, you know, step one, get a servant, make him put his hand under your thigh and swear an oath to you. Uh, step two, go where all the women are, because, you know, if there's more fish in the pond, you've got a better chance of getting one, right? Uh, step three, make up a test to kind of filter through this, and then you'll know which woman it's supposed to be. Like, that's not what this is about at all. Not what this text is about, but with that said... Uh, while this text isn't about principles for finding a spouse, I, I do think it has some helpful things to say to us as to what we should be looking for in a spouse. Do you understand the difference there? And, and so I think this test that the servant lays out uh, shows us the most important thing that we should be looking for in a spouse, uh, which is character. And then he, he adds a few verses down. She needs to be a follower of God. She needs to follow the Lord. And so if you're looking for a potential spouse, this is what we should be looking for, a follower of Jesus who has high character. And, and listen, before I go any further, just hear me say uh, that, that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says that we should only marry in the Lord, we should only marry another believer. Look, God is so gracious to work in all sorts of situations. And if you, you haven't done this, or uh, maybe you weren't saved when you got married, and then you, you've later become saved, and your spouse has not been saved, you're uh, married to an unbeliever, like, please hear me say, uh, you are not second class, and God sees you, He loves you, He knows you, He cares for you, He's not punishing you in any of this, and He's not done using you, He's not through with you. God can redeem and work in all sorts of situations uh, and, and there's so many stories about how God has worked in situations just like that. Uh, but, but right now, I'm talking to those specifically of you who, who are not yet married and would potentially be pursuing a spouse. And so once again, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that we should only marry in the Lord. We should only marry another believer. And, and look, this just makes sense. Because if the fundamental commitments of your life are to love and follow Jesus and to serve his church and to live your life wholeheartedly for him, 
Uh, why would you willingly unite yourself in the closest possible relationship with someone who doesn't share those commitments? I mean, do you know how difficult everyday life is going to be when you're that opposed on the most fundamental convictions about life? And listen, I, I don't know why this seems to be the case, but it just seems like so many of us think that we will be the exception to this. That if we date and then later marry an unbeliever, that we will be able to affect and influence them, uh, but yet they won't ever affect and influence us. That we'll just be able to win them to Jesus without them having any influence on us uh, in a way away from Jesus. But look, the truth is that the track record uh, of people who once followed Jesus and looked like they had a passion for Jesus, who then dated and then married an unbeliever, uh, walking away from Jesus and walking away from the church, there's a much better track record of that uh, than there is of the other way around. Like, like this is just the case. This is what happens, and, and this is what happens when we do this. And so uh, God is telling us here that we should uh, only marry in the Lord, only marry another believer because of these fundamental convictions and about these things. And listen, uh, it if this is where you're at right now, if this is uh, what you're searching for and you're waiting for a spouse and you're longing for a spouse, I, I think the best thing you can focus on right now is, is being this kind of person. Like, you focus right now on being this kind of person, on cultivating a deep walk with Jesus and pursuing intimacy with him and growing in godly character uh, so that when this person comes along and you notice them, you're like, man, uh, they really love Jesus. They have a depth of character. Uh, they don't turn around and think the exact opposite about you. Like, they don't see you and think, well, this person isn't really serious about Jesus, uh, it, and it still is pretty immature, so I'm not going to spend any time with them. Uh, you should focus on being this type of person, a follower of Jesus who has a depth of character, uh, and, and God's given us this command for our good and for our flourishing. And so uh, the servant lays out this test, and then look at what happens in verse 15 of chapter 24. It says, Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing, weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. 
And so before the servant is even done praying, uh, Rebecca shows up on the scene. She comes to the well, and, and she passes the test that he proposed. He, she uh, fills up and, and gives him a drink of water, and then she volunteers to water all of his camels. And listen, there were 10 camels, uh, and camels drink a lot of water. It says that she filled it up until they were finished drinking, uh, and so most scholars think that she would have had to make like between 80 to 100 trips to the well and back, uh, and this would have taken hours for her to do so. And so obviously, she's pretty great, right? She is a woman of high character, uh, a woman of hospitality and welcome. And then we find out not only is she a woman of high character, uh, she's also a member of Abraham's family, uh, which is really weird to us today. I, I understand that. Uh, but it wasn't weird back then. And once again, the big thing about this uh, is that she's a follower of God. She knows the Lord. And so notice what has happened here at this well today. Just by chance, uh, this man went to the exact well where he met a woman of high character before he was even done praying. And just by chance, he went to the exact well where Abraham's family came to draw water. And just by chance, he meets Rebekah, the woman that God has for Isaac, before he's even done praying. I mean, hopefully we can see by this point this isn't by chance at all, right? God is guiding and prospering this servant's journey to give him success and to accomplish this mission. This is why the servant bows down and he worships the Lord when he finds out uh, who's Rebecca's, who Rebecca's family is because he knows that's what God is doing. He knows that God is prospering his journey and giving him success. And so look at what happens next in verse 28. It says, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. And so the servant comes back to uh, their house. He comes and he tells the family. They offer him food to eat, but before he eats, he wants to tell them uh, the significance of what has gone on today. And so from verse 34 to verse 48, uh, what he does is he basically repeats word for word the story that we've just had narrated for us, and he emphasizes how God has providentially guided these things today because he wants to show Rebecca and her family how God has been at work in these events today. He wants to point at this and say, look at what God has done. Look at what he's doing here and how he's being faithful. Uh, and so he does this, and this leads to exactly what he wants to happen. Let's pick back up in the story in verse 49. At the end of his speech, he says this. He says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. 
And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And so Rebekah agrees to go back to the promised land to meet and to marry Isaac, and uh, when she does this, it's interesting. Notice in verse 60, when, she, when they bless Rebekah before she leaves, uh, it uses almost word for word the exact same thing that God said to Abraham at the end of chapter 22 after uh, he went up with Isaac on the mountain when God said, uh, may your offspring possess the gate of uh, his enemies. And just like there, as it is here, notice that it says, uh, may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him singular, not those who hate them, plural. Uh, and so if you remember all the way back in Genesis 3, when God made his first promise of the gospel, that an offspring of the woman was going to come and would be born into the world, and he would crush the head of the serpent, he would reverse the curse, he would bring salvation, uh, and he was spoken of as a he, as a singular, one man who would come and who would bring this salvation, uh, just like it's spoken of as a, as a male in the singular here. And so Genesis is trying to connect these two things and tell us that the seed of the woman, the promise, the Savior who's going to come is coming through Isaac and Rebekah's line, that this is how God is going to bring salvation into the world. And, and so with that, let's see them meet and marry as this chapter closes out. Verse 62, it says this, Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahoi Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so uh, she comes back, they meet, they get married. It's like a good rom-com, happily ever after. They kind of ride off into the sunset. Uh, it, it's a good, happy ending. And then we get that kind of weird verse at the end that tells us that Isaac took her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, uh, but what that's saying and symbolizing is that Rebekah is now the new mother of God's people. That, that the baton has been passed from Abraham to Sarah and Sarah to Rebekah and to Isaac, that this uh, is how the promise is going to continue. And, and so, man, to sum this all up, look at what God has do, done here. This chapter just showcases the providence of God uh, to be faithful and to make sure his promise does not die out. That, that his promise will not die out with Abraham and Sarah. It will continue. He will be faithful to bring the Savior into the world. Like, he did this. 
He guided the servant's journey and made it prosperous. He made sure the mission was a success. He did this. And so this story points us to the faithfulness of God, uh, but it does so in a way that doesn't just terminate on itself. The story actually points beyond itself and I think actually shows us the purpose for all of history. Like it's that big. Uh, Because maybe you noticed a detail that was uh, laid out earlier in the story, which is that the servant met Rebecca where? By a well of water. Uh, And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this is not an isolated incident. Uh, Even though this isn't principles for finding a spouse, it seems like you've got a pretty good chance in the Old Testament to find a spouse if you go to a well of water. This happens time and time again. Jacob, later on in Genesis, will meet his wife Rachel by a well of water. Moses, he will meet his wife by a well of water. And in all three of these scenes, the pattern is the same of someone going into a foreign country, meeting this woman at the well, uh, her going back to tell her family or her friends or her neighbors, uh, and then a marriage happening. And, And this pattern, this story we see continually repeated in the Old Testament, it really comes to a head in John chapter 4 when Jesus goes to a foreign country. He goes to Samaria, a place where Jewish people did not go, uh, and he meets a woman at a well, by a well of water. Now, if we're good readers of our Old Testament, we should expect this scene to end in a marriage, uh, but the story gets upended a little bit, and the pattern gets upended a little bit to show us who Jesus is and what he has really come to do. You see, because Jesus has not just come to marry one woman, uh, he's come to unite the whole church to himself in marriage. And so after having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, she goes back to her town and she tells everybody in the town, you've got to come see this man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Savior who was promised so long ago? And he is. He's finally here, the one the whole story has been pointing to. And so we've already seen in Genesis how Isaac is a picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus, both in his miraculous birth and then in his near death and resurrection on the mountain. And the story in Genesis 24 is told this way, fitting into that pattern like it does to show us that the story, the love story of Isaac and Rebekah doesn't just terminate on itself, it points beyond itself to the true love story of the whole world, which is Jesus and his church. Like, this is the great story of the Bible, this love story between Jesus and his church, this story of God going and getting a bride for his son, of Jesus the son, loving and pursuing his bride uh, so far that he would even go to death and back to bring her home. This is the purpose of all of human history. This is where everything is headed, to the union of Jesus with his church. Like, this is why God created the world. God created the world and he created people to give a bride to his son. This is the great promise of the Bible, that though we are all sinners and spiritual adulterers who have continually turned away from God and went after other lovers seeking to satisfy us, uh, yet Jesus would not quit on us. He would continue to pursue us. He would chase us down until he won us back and brought us all the way home. This is what God continually promises and encourages us with. Let me just show you this in a few places. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, God says this. He says, I will betroth you or marry you to me forever. I will marry you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. 
I will marry you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 62, verse 5, God says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And in Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And this is what salvation is. This is what we're being invited into, the love and closeness and intimacy that even the best of human marriages experience here is just a dim shadow of the intimacy and the union and communion that we can have with Jesus. This is what it's all pointing to. This is what Ephesians 5 tells us, that the love between a man and woman, the the symbol of earthly marriage between a man and a woman is just a picture that points to a greater reality, a deeper reality, which is the love between Jesus and his church, the love of Jesus for his church. And and listen, men, if you get weirded out about that, that, that we're part of the bride of Christ along with women, just know that in the Bible, women alongside of men were both called sons of God because we're united to Jesus the Son, and we share in all the benefits and privileges of his sonship. And so... Look, it's really okay if men alongside of women, if we all together make up the bride of Christ, and and look, rather than getting hung up on the name and letting it weird you out, like press through to to the reality. Because the reality of what this means is that deep personal intimacy with Jesus is available to you. Not just to pastors or some class of super elite Christians, to you. Like, you can have a relationship with Jesus uh, that's closer than the union between a husband and a wife. Like, you can know him with this sort of friendship and closeness and intimacy. And look, I know how repetitive I've been with this theme lately, but I'm being repetitive on purpose. Because if this is what's being offered to you, real union and fellowship with Jesus where you know him and you love him and you walk with him and you delight in him and his delight over you, like if that's what's being offered to you in the gospel, why would you ever settle for just going to church and playing religious games to check off boxes? That's such a lame hobby, especially when this is what is offered to you. Like, this is what God is giving us in the gospel, a union with Jesus that's even deeper and more real and more close than the union between a husband and a wife. It's good news. And could you just imagine what your life would look like 20 years from now if you just gave yourself to this? If every day through weak, stumbling, up and down, start and stop attempts, every day you just showed up with Jesus and you read your Bible and you prayed to him, once again, with weak, stumbling attempts, like, could you imagine what Jesus might do in your life and the depth of intimacy that you might cultivate with him? Like, yeah, you won't see the difference from day to day, but a lifetime of pursuing intimacy with Jesus and cultivating intimacy with him like this through his word and through prayer will, will bear an incredible amount of fruit, and that's what he's calling us into. And so this story, it it informs us of the intimacy that we can have with Jesus, but it doesn't just do that. Uh, It also informs us about our mission. Because this story of God going to, of a father going to get a bride for his son, sending a servant to get a bride for the son, 
Uh, this is the story that's still playing out today, and it's the story that all of us as followers of Jesus are being called into. Because as followers of Jesus, we are both the bride and the servant in this story. We are called and saved into marital union with Jesus, and then just like the servant, we are called to invite others uh, to meet Jesus and, and to know him as well and to be brought into this relationship along with us. And so really, this story lays out like a whole purpose and mission for our lives, what we should be giving our lives to, what we should be resting in. We pursue intimacy with Jesus for ourselves. We help each other pursue intimacy with Jesus and grow in Jesus, and then we invite others to meet him. We invite others to meet him because when we really love something or someone, we can't help but talk about them, right? Because we want other people to share in the joy that we have in knowing this person. We want everybody else to know just how incredible they are or just how incredible this thing is. And so the more we cultivate intimacy with Jesus in our own lives, and the more we're going to want to share the good news of him with our friends and with our family and with our neighbors, the more we're going to want to talk about him and introduce everyone we meet to him so that they might meet him as well and so that Jesus might have the bride for which he died. People from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation. And so we invite others to meet him like the servant, but we, we don't just do that. We should also help each other here in the church love and follow Jesus and grow in Jesus. Look, I, I said it last week, but I'll just say it again. You by yourself are not the bride of Jesus. I by myself am not the bride of Jesus. The bride of Jesus is the church. Like Jesus did not just love and die for a bunch of disconnected individuals. He loved and he died for his church. And so listen, if Jesus loves his church, so should you. If Jesus pursues her growth and her flourishing and her development, like Ephesians 5 tells us that he does, so should you. It will not be you and Jesus alone in heaven. It will not be me and Jesus alone in heaven. It will be Jesus and his church. And so this reality, it should cause us to take ownership for one another here in the church. We don't leave each other behind to struggle and suffer and die spiritually because Jesus has died for his church. He's died for every member of his church. And so listen, the church should never be a safe place for sin, but it has to be a safe place for sinners. Like this church has to be a safe place for confession, a place where we can confess our sin and bring it into the light and get honest about where we're struggling and where we're falling short, knowing that others will help us fight against it and we won't be judged or shamed for that. Because if this isn't a place where we can confess and repent without fear of being shamed and judged, what place is there going to be for that? Where else is that? And we are helping each other follow Jesus here, which means that we need, as Ray Ortland says, a lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. We need a lot of gospel. We need to regularly, every day, be encouraging each other with the good news that because Jesus has died for us, our sins are forgiven, our judgment has been taken, there's no condemnation left for us to bear, that even when we fall short and fail, God is for us and not against us. Jesus will not change his mind about us. We have to encourage one another each day with lots of the good news of the gospel. And we need safety. 
This has to be a safe place to be radically honest and vulnerable about where we're falling short and where we're sinning and where we're struggling, knowing that people will help us fight against it and people will walk with us and they will not judge us and they will not shame us because of the good news of the gospel. And it has to be a place where there is a lot of time because the sort of deep and lasting change that Jesus is going to, and I said it that way on purpose because it's a promise, the real deep lasting change that Jesus is going to work in our lives, that sort of change takes time. And so we've got to give people the space to, to grow and have Jesus work that deep change in their lives and uh, struggle and fight against sin, knowing that our union with Jesus is secure because of what he has done for us and not because of how quickly we're growing. And, and so listen, if I could just encourage you in any way, would you give your life to this reality? Would you spend your life serving the church, building up one another here in the church, living to help your brothers and sisters here in the church? Look, for you to try to be a Lone Ranger and do Christianity all by yourself uh, without helping anyone else or without receiving help from anyone else, you're working against the grain of the universe and how God created you and how God created the world, and you're working against the purpose of Jesus. Because this is what Jesus has given himself to. This is what Jesus has died for. This is what Jesus is building, and this is where history is heading. History is heading to the day when it will be Jesus and his church in a new earth, us with him, him with us, face to face. He will be our God. We will be his people, world without end. That's where everything is heading. That's ultimate reality. And so by the grace of Jesus, let's live into that reality as much as we can now. Let's live to serve one another and build each other up here in the church. So let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That this story bears witness, Jesus, to your love for your bride. For us, that you loved us so much that you would go to death to bring us back to yourself and to win us and bring us home. Jesus, thank you that you love us like this. Thank you that you are for us like this. And thank you that we have been saved into this reality, that we will be with you forever. We will be your people. You will be our God. And every day will be better than the one before. Jesus, because of this reality, would you help us to step into this and to live into this as much as we can now, to live, to build up our brothers and sisters here in the church, to know that in you, Jesus, we are our brother and sister's keeper. You have called us to serve one another here. We all need each other, and so would you help us to press into this in all of our different ways that we serve, uh, in all of the different ways that we help one another and encourage one another. Uh, I pray for all the different men and women in this room who will get together this week for different things, to read the Bible together, to pray, to encourage each other, to serve one another, to bring meals. God, would you bless us in all of this and grow us and strengthen us as a church? Would you do, Jesus, what you've promised to do in Ephesians 5 and purify us and change us so that we would be a spotless bride for you at the end of days? Thank you that it was, it's been granted to us to clothe ourselves in your righteousness and in the deeds of good works that you are working in us and through us. And so, Jesus, please do this more and more among us. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.